Bible, please open it up to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be right at the end of Colossians 3, starting in verse 22. If you don't have a Bible, you can uh, use the one that's in the seat uh, in front of you there. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that as our gift to you. You can find Colossians 3 on page 1,088 in those Bibles there, page 1,088. Let's read Colossians 3, starting in verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Father God, we are thankful for your word that uh, challenges us, that uh, even as it, as it reaches through the centuries to speak to us, that, that changes us. And I pray that you would use your word for us this morning. Change our hearts, change our attitudes, let those changes show up in our actions. And we want to lift up our crew team, those folks who are serving apart from us over in Oregon, and I pray that you would allow them to just uh, excel in their assignments, the things that you've called them to, uh, even beyond what they can even imagine that they're capable of. Lord, we pray that you would use them in those ways and that they would grow in faith through that. And, and I pray too, Lord, that uh, deep relationships will be formed uh, not only amongst that team, but even with the people that they're ministering to, ministering with. And, and I pray more than anything that the gospel would advance as a result of their obedience to you, Lord. And we pray the same kinds of things for our friends at Mission Church, Lord, as they have resumed in-person gatherings after such a long time away. Lord, I just am grateful for their gospel presence in our valley and, and pray that you would bless them, continue to use them, equip them with everything they need to, to serve you and in the same way that, that we ask for ourselves, that, uh, that we would all live out the gospel in word and in deed. And uh, Lord, we want to pray for our own uh, Cindy Hartle as she is facing brain surgery tomorrow, grateful that the surgery is finally scheduled after such a long time, and I pray that you would just uh, guide those surgeons, use them to uh, uh, do exactly what they need to do to be able to get to the bottom of, of what's bothering her, Lord, pray that you would just give her uh, uh, mercy and a quick recovery tomorrow as well, and, and we want to lift up finally our global partners, Peter and Debbie Dodd, as they are uh, headed back here in just a, a matter of days to uh, to Thailand to engage their work again. Pray that uh, uh, as we pray alongside them that as they face the prospect of uh, a 14-day quarantine in a hotel, that you would just uh, uh, either provide the money for that, it's very expensive, or um, or change the requirements that they don't have to do that at all. Lord, pray that you would just provide for them in in that way. And we want to pray alongside them that as the political situation in Taiwan grows tense, that uh, that, that might stabilize. We, we know that there's real threat of China trying to annex Taiwan, and that would be a, just an incredible uh, barrier to the gospel, Lord, not something that you can't overcome, but certainly a barrier, and we don't want to see that. We want to see uh, you 
your work uh, flourish and grow there and pray that the Dodds would be able to, to work without hindrance. And we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, very often, that's the, a question we ask, almost as an icebreaker, the start of a conversation. Right? What do you do? There's a subtle implication that somehow understanding what a person does helps us define that person a little bit, helps us understand them a little bit better. But a, but a far better question, a more penetrating question, is not just what do you do, but why do you do? And our passage this morning cuts to the heart with that very question. Why do you do what you do? And I want us to think carefully about that this morning as we explore Paul's words to us. We are continuing our study of the book of Colossians, this letter, this letter written by Paul to the church of Colossae. And it's really interesting because Paul uh, writes to them, this church, while he himself is in prison. He's, he's wrote, he wrote this letter and a couple other letters from in prison, and he, he starts off just commending this church that he didn't start. You know, if you look at the beginning of chapter 1, Paul says he heard about their faith in Christ, the love they have for the saints, but Paul apparently didn't start this church. It seems that Paul's friend and companion Epaphras was the one who started that church there in the city of Colossae, and Paul describes Epaphras as a, as a fellow servant or a fellow slave. And that idea of slavery is really key in our passage this morning. For Paul and for Epaphras, that slavery was part of the why they did what they did. And in this section at the end of chapter 3, Paul's writing what's known as a, a household code. Uh, it's a set of instructions for all the members of a household, men and women, husbands, wives, children, parents, and, and notably slaves, bondservants. Uh, and the concept of slavery was a huge piece of life in the ancient Roman world. They were a common part of many households. And Paul uses this section at the end of Colossians 3 to give some very practical instructions to everyone in the household, including slaves. And just to give you an idea of how important the idea of slavery was in the ancient world, uh, the Greek word for household is, is oikos. And if you say it out loud, you can even start to hear it's connected to our modern word economy. Economy originally meant simply household management. And in the ancient world, a man was the head of an oikos, the head of a household. But that household might include not just his wife and his children, but would include his extended family, his hired workers, uh, maybe poor people or disabled people that he supported, uh, local vendors or businessmen that he had regular dealings with, and it included slaves. So one Oikos would have a significant sphere of influence. You can see perhaps how one household, one oikos, would have a, a profound effect on a local economy. One oikos can have very significant reach in a community, which is part of the reason that Paul, Epaphras, others would start churches that met at a house, an oikos. And, and you can see why Paul would include instructions in his letter to these churches that uh, instructions for each of the different people in helping them just live out their Christian faith in the context of real life. He's helping all of the people answer this question, not just what do we do, but why do we do? And the beginning of this household code here in Colossians, this section of Scripture is worth repeating, worth focusing on for a moment. It sets the tone for, for all that we're going to talk about today. Look with me at Colossians 3, verse 17. It says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So for every member of the household, no matter who you are, we get these instructions. Do everything in the name of the Lord. 
That idea, name of, just includes the idea of reputation, doing everything in line with the reputation of Jesus. Whatever we do, any of us, we have to do in a way that supports the reputation of Jesus. We don't want to ruin His reputation. We want to do everything in line with who Jesus is and how He might respond in a given situation. So all the household code is really summarized in that first verse. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And you'll recall over the past few weeks as we've explored this letter of Colossians, explored what Paul has to say to these different members of the household, husbands and wives and parents and children, that we've been leaning pretty heavily on the book of Ephesians, right? There's another household code in that book, and Paul has extensive instructions there for husbands and wives, as we've seen over the past few weeks. But what's interesting is that here in Colossians, Paul has just four short verses to cover all the instructions for husbands and wives and children and parents. But when it comes to this other group, this this other member of the ancient household, Paul has a lot of things to say, more than he says to, to any of these other relationships. And yet the idea of slavery really makes us uncomfortable. It doesn't fit in seemingly with these God-ordained relationships of husbands and wives and children and parents. Uh, in fact, Aristotle, that famous ancient Greek, he said these things about slaves. He called slaves an animate article of property, like the way you might think about a dog or some kind of a pet. Right? In Aristotle's mind, a slave didn't even have the ability to think logically or clearly. They were unable to take part in rational discourse. And so for us, we come to this household code. It's kind of easy for us to take seriously those commands to husbands or wives or, or parents because we, we have those same kinds of relationships today. But we hear this idea of slave or bond servant. It comes with a lot of baggage. It's easy for us to just dismiss. For us, you know, maybe our mind automatically goes to the history of slavery in this country, race-based slavery, and yet slavery in the ancient world was not entirely the same. Now, there was some situations in the ancient world where people were enslaved against their will. There were folks who were, you know, captured in foreign wars, that kind of a thing. They were then enslaved, forced to do manual labor. But there were also a lot of differences from slavery in the American South. Some ancient slaves were even very well-educated, valued members of a household, in ancient Roman culture, it was considered slave work to do any kind of, a la- of labor. So for, if, you, if you were a man in the ancient world, uh, you were the head of a household, head of this economy, you didn't do any work. You had a slave to do all that kind of stuff. And so slaves did all kinds of things, educating children or managing the estate. Some slaves even served as physicians, taking care of a family in that way. Uh, in fact, one estimate says there were about 60 million slaves in the ancient Roman world. And the total population was less than 120 million. So about half of the ancient Roman world was a slave in some form or another. So all this is to say it's not unreasonable when we see slavery in the biblical world to equate it with modern-day employment. And maybe for some of you, your job really feels like slavery. That's not that big of a stretch. But but the comparison of, of slavery to work is really fitting for all of us because slavery was the dominant form of labor and work in that world, and it's just how the economy worked, just as employment is the dominant form of work in our world. And so while it's easy for us at first reading to just dismiss or try to gloss over these passages about slaves and masters, we shouldn't do that. I don't want us to dismiss what Paul has to teach us here because it's transformative. There's a reason he spends more time talking to slaves 
than he does to husbands and wives and children and parents together. And let me say something specific to those of us who may be retired or not working. Uh, it's kind of easy to dismiss these employee kinds of commands as, oh, it's not applicable to me, but, but I point you back to that key verse, Colossians 3.17, that verse that starts this entire section. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, these instructions go beyond just slaves. They reach down the centuries to employees and employers, and they go beyond that even to everything we do in word or deed. Everything we do can be informed by these words from Scripture. Remember, our fundamental question, it's not, what do you do, but why do you do? One source I read in my study said it simply, Paul's counsel to slaves is applicable to everyone. We can all benefit from this exploration of why we do what we do. Another writer says it even more succinctly than that. He calls this passage the gospel in shoe leather. In other words, this household code, these words to slaves are words to, to each of us that help us put the gospel into action in our real life, the gospel just walking around in our real life. And with that in mind, let's read the passage together again, Colossians 3, starting in verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. There was a book series uh, that was popular a few years back, a series called Eat This, Not That. Like the basic idea was, hey, don't eat this fatty cheeseburger. Instead, eat this healthy salad instead. Right? Like, I don't know why we need a book for that. It's pretty obvious. But, but do this, not that. That's the structure of this passage this morning. The whole passage is built on this series of contrast. And as we explore it, we're going to see first how we should work, and then we're going to see how not to work. And finally, we're going to come to answer that question of why do we work? So how should we work, how not to work, and why? And the passage first teaches us how we should work. It starts off with a command. Verse 22, it says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Obey, that's the command. How should we work? Well, in part, we should actually work, actually do things that are asked of us, actually obey. And again, as we've talked about, this whole idea of slavery, it does not sit right with us. And this command doesn't help much. Like, we'd feel a lot more comfortable if Paul started these instructions by making some kind of a statement about how evil slavery is and the whole system should be abolished. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't even start off talking to slave owners to say, hey, you should really treat those slaves better. Instead, he just starts off telling slaves, these bond servants, obey everything their earthly masters tell them. That's pretty uncomfortable. Like, especially if you try to take and transfer that command straight from slavery to your own job. Like, if you try to say something like, employees, obey your earthly boss in everything. Well, you know, some of us, we've maybe in the past or maybe even right now, work for companies or bosses that are less than ethical. Paul's telling us to obey no matter what. 
Certainly in Paul's time, there were slave owners who were less than kind, less than gracious, and yet the command he gives is bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. How uncomfortable. And some folks think, well, okay, well, maybe Paul means just obey those masters who are kind or are the ones who, who happen to be Christians. But if you look at the book of 1 Peter, you see the Bible doesn't give us any room for that kind of thinking. 1 Peter 2 tells us this, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. All masters, even the ones who are unjust, should be obeyed. It should be obeyed with respect, according to Peter. Like, you can't even be passive-aggressive in the way you obey. Just obedient, right? So right away, when we wish Paul would say something about how terrible slavery is, he just gives us this command, obey. And remember, we're exploring this beginning of this passage, understanding how we should work. But, but like we said, if you try to transfer it directly into your workplace you've got a problem. It doesn't really translate directly, but no one's asking you to violate Christian ethics at work. If your boss tells you to do something that goes against God's will, no one's telling you you have to obey that. This command teaches us something very important, but it requires that we nuance it just a little bit. We have to be wise in how we understand this, because the reality is, for these early Christians, they were a very small minority within the ancient Roman world, very small. And even though Paul and others understood that slavery was not in line with God's will, I think he also understood that if he put a stake in the ground, he called for the complete abolition of slavery, you know, hashtag defund slavery, whatever, the gospel message would have been completely obscure. Remember, as much as half the total population was a slave of one kind or another. So if Paul comes out right away and says, man, we're going to blow up the whole economy, the whole system, any chance he had to promote the gospel would have been gone. I mean, even Jesus didn't come to overthrow the Roman government, corrupt as it was. Instead, Jesus and Paul teach us how to carry out our mission as Christians in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. That's how we work. We work advancing the kingdom one day at a time, one job at a time, one relationship at a time. That's true for us, just as it was true for slaves caught in an unjust situation. So obeying our earthly masters, treating them with respect is part of the way we carry out our mission as Christians, advancing the gospel, making disciples in whatever situations we find ourselves. We live in a way that the name of Jesus is honored in our lives. In 1 Timothy, Paul states this principle even more clearly. Listen to 1 Timothy 6. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And he goes on to give a reason. He says, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So in this passage, Paul acknowledges the difficult place of a slave, of an employee. He understands that tension of having a, a boss or a master who's unethical or even cruel. And in those situations, we act in a way that the name of God and the teachings of Jesus are not reviled. They're not just dismissed worthless. So when we consider how we work, first of all, we obey, carrying out our mission in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. The passage goes on to tell us we do it with sincerity of heart, verse 22. This phrase, sincerity of heart, it, it translates a phrase that literally means something like single-mindedness. We obey with a singular focus. 
And the focus is not on what we're doing, not focused just on the here and now, but, but that singular focus, that single-mindedness, that sincerity of heart is focused on the why of what we do. That next verse, verse 23, tells us how to, to, to work heartily. Again, if you look at this literally, it says, we obey from the soul. That's a literal translation. So our focus is not on the what, it's on the why. We obey with a focus on our own soul, doing our work for the Lord. Again, we go back to the beginning of this section, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So the same passion, the same attention we ought to give to our marriages or to our families, we should be giving to our work. That doesn't mean we give the same priority to our work. That's a separate discussion. Family must take priority over work. But the, the passion, the spiritual energy we put into our family ought to show up in our work, in what we do. So, how should we work? We obey. We do it with sincere hearts. We do it with our whole soul. And look at the end of verse 22. We do it fearing the Lord. We acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord of our lives and the Lord of our workplaces too. There's, there's nowhere that His authority doesn't reach. In fact, this word Lord, it shows up seven different times in this passage, this household code. It's a key idea. Jesus must be Lord of our lives, our whole lives. In our work, in all of our lives, we fear the Lord. Now, I don't mean in the way we often think, but I mean in, in reverent awe. We, we, the fear of the Lord means there's a constant awareness that Christ is always with us. He's, he's watching. He's evaluating the lives we lead and the work we do. And in fact, this idea of lordship, of, of Jesus as Lord of our lives, it's a key feature throughout the whole book of Colossians. Right from the beginning, this, this amazing passage about Jesus that's in chapter 1, says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He, he's the Lord of all creation. And these false teachers that have infiltrated that Colossian church, as Paul writes against those false teachers in chapter 2, he appeals to the lordship of Christ. That's the solution to overcome false teaching. He says, all the fullness of deity dwells in Him, in Jesus. He's the Lord of everything. The beginning of chapter 3, Paul begins his section on these practical instructions. The whole section is really built on the lordship of Christ, making Jesus not only our Savior, but also the Lord of our lives ongoing. And finally, we come back to that key verse that starts this household code, verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Everything we do, everything we say, it all falls under the domain of Christ. We do it all in Him and for Him. I told you this passage was transformative, and this idea is worth our attention. Is Jesus really the Lord of your life? Is Jesus the primary concern of your heart and your mind? at work, in your day-to-day -day life, are you demonstrating your allegiance to Jesus? In everything we say and we do, does the name of Jesus gain renown? Is He Lord of our lives? Jesus' presence in our life is going to move from lip service to lordship. His presence needs to show up in our work. It needs to show up in what we do. Even the most mundane of tasks Come under His care and reflect His name, His Lordship in our lives. So how do we work? We obey, serving the Lord in everything, 
All our work is from the soul. It's all soul work. It's all ministry done for Him and empowered by Him. The passage goes on to tell us how not to work. What kinds of actions and attitudes should we avoid? Look at the passage again, verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. So we don't work by way of eye service. Another translation says, don't work only while being watched. It stands to reason that if our work is supposed to reflect Christ to the world, that we, should only, uh, we shouldn't only work while others are paying attention. We should work knowing that Jesus is always with us. Our attitudes, working just as hard with or without other people watching, uh, that's contagious. You know, we should learn not to keep an eye on the clock, but to keep an eye on Christ. I'm reminded of a story of a, a factory manager who realized that his, his workers' production was really being affected by people coming back from their lunch break late. When the whistle blew at the end of the lunch break, only a few of the workers were back at their stations, and the factory manager thought about the problem, and he, he posted a sign by the suggestion box, and it said, uh, there's a cash award for whoever could answer this question the best. What should we do to make sure that every worker will be inside the factory when the whistle blows? Well, a lot of people submitted suggestions, but there was really only one that solved the problem. Somebody suggested the solution is quite simple. Just let the last person who comes in blow the whistle. Needless to say, that's not a very Christian attitude towards work. We don't work only by way of eye service, looking for loopholes, cutting corners. The next phrase is a very similar idea. We don't work as people pleasers, verse 22. Of course, that doesn't mean we don't try to please people, but it means that we don't put our focus only on pleasing people. We work with full dedication, not just to impress people. There's no room for acting when you're on the job, unless, of course, you have a job as an actor. But the reality is all of us, we fall prey to temptation, to phone it into work sometimes, to take shortcuts, to do the bare minimum. But these are not attitudes that honor Christ. Those attitudes don't reflect His lordship in our lives. Remember, these words, these commands were originally written to slaves. And Paul doesn't write to try to dismantle slavery in his world, but he writes to encourage slaves who have no power to change their circumstances. One author draws two very powerful truths out of this passage. He says this, first, the primary concern in this passage is a Christian response to life's situations. If circumstances can't be changed, Christians must respond with a sense of responsibility to God who has chosen not to alter their circumstances. No circumstance more dramatically presents that than slavery. He goes on to say this, Second, a theology of work emerges from this passage. Genuine service in honest work brings honor to God. God watches the stewardship of our energy, our time, and our life. Selfish gain should not affect the Christian's work. We work in response to the Lord, realizing that God will ultimately supply the proper wages. We've learned how to work, we're learning how not to work, not just with eye service, not as people pleasers. In verse 23, there's one more way we don't work. We don't work only for people. And as we said, these, these Christians in Rome were a very small minority. They had very little hope of influencing their culture in tangible ways, of upsetting the system of slavery. 
Their influence instead was going to come in the way they advanced the kingdom, living out their faith within their circumstances. And the same is true for so many of us. Our culture is increasingly hostile to the gospel, hostile to Christianity. But our task, our work, is still to behave like Christians within that social structure. We don't work only to impress people, to influence people, to try to get ahead in some way. We work with that higher calling. We work for the Lord. Elsewhere, Paul encourages us with these words. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Don't become bondservants of men. So we don't work for people trying to gain favor. That's the path towards more slavery. But the path of those, who us, those of us who are free in Christ, regardless of our circumstances, is to serve the Lord, to keep our focus on Him, not on people. And in all these warnings, all these ways not to work, it all ultimately comes down to our attitudes. Everything starts with our heart. We don't work only while being watched. We don't work only to please people. We don't work only for the here and now or the focus only on people. That leads us directly to the very next section of this passage. Verse 24 tells us why we work. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. In our work, no matter how hard it might get, no matter how challenging it might be, we work as to the Lord. Partly that means we obey, as we talked about, but partly it means we just keep our focus on Him, trusting Him to care for us. We don't find our our satisfaction, our identity only in our work, but we find it in Him and in His promises. One of the promises the Lord gives us is right here in this passage. Paul tells us why we work, and it's because you'll receive an inheritance as your reward. For slaves in particular, this is astounding. Slaves didn't get an inheritance, but as followers of Christ, we do. We're promised all throughout the New Testament that we'll receive an inheritance from Christ. And what's less clear, though, is that there's different kinds of inheritance promised to Christians depending on our faithfulness to the Lord. All of us who have put our faith in Christ, we all receive the gift of eternal life. We're all going to receive some level of inheritance But those believers who remain faithful to the Lord through trials, through difficulties, those believers will receive even more of an inheritance. Those of us who remember that we serve the Lord Christ in all that we say and all that we do, for those of us, there's a special inheritance, a reward that awaits us. In some of the very last words in the Bible, Jesus himself makes this promise. He says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he's done. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the Lord of everything, and he's coming bringing an inheritance. So we work not for earthly gain, not to please people, but we work because we know, we know by faith that we'll be rewarded with an eternal inheritance that does not fade, where moths and rust don't destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. The reality of this inheritance that awaits, it helps us make sense of the next verse, verse 25. That verse talks about wrongdoers being paid back. It tells us there's no 
favoritism, there's no partiality. And the idea is simply that justice will prevail. Even if we're wronged in this life, justice will prevail. Even if people play favorites here, we end up on the wrong side of that, justice will prevail. We can remain faithful to Christ, knowing that that's true. Even if we suffer as a slave, we'll receive an inheritance. Justice will prevail. The reality is simply there's no favoritism because the judgment of the Lord is not based on externals. It's based on what's real, the attitude of our hearts, how we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. And there's no exceptions. The Lord doesn't allow room for unjust favoritism. That's why Paul addresses the masters of slaves in the very next verse, the beginning of chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. All of us, masters, slaves, we all must ultimately submit ourselves to Christ and to His will. The inheritance He earned for us, the inheritance that comes from our faithfulness to Him, regardless of our earthly circumstances, He will deliver ultimate justice. So Paul tells us how we work, obeying, recognizing that all the work we do is soul work. And he tells us how not to work, not just working for people, not just working with eye service. Our work must start with an attitude of our hearts focused on Christ. And then he gives us the why, why we work, because we know there is an inheritance that awaits those who remain faithful to Christ. Whatever our circumstances, whether we're masters or slaves, we ultimately must all submit to Him. And in these instructions to slaves and masters, these critical members of the household, there's one more thing that becomes pretty clear. We're all slaves. We're all slaves to Christ. Earlier I quoted from Aristotle his view of what a slave is, but I want us to revisit what he says about slaves. He says, anyone who by his nature is not his own man, but belongs to another, he's a slave. Each of us who belongs to Jesus was bought with a price. We're all slaves to him. So this passage takes on even more meaning for us. We're all slaves to Christ. Aristotle goes on to say a slave is an instrument intended for the purpose of action. Well, that's a fitting description for us. We're slaves to Christ. Why do we work? We work because we were bought with a price purchased by the blood of Jesus. His death paid the punishment for our sins. His resurrection gives us new life. We're raised to new life in Christ. We belong to Him. We've become His slaves, His instruments intended for the purpose of action. Christ desires that we use our lives, whatever we do, in word or deed, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. We're His instrument. Our whole lives, our work, is to be used by Him. I mean, just the same way that a musical instrument is useless without being played, being put into action, we're wasting our time if we don't commit ourselves to serving Christ with our lives, to becoming His instrument. That's why the passage tells us you're serving the Lord Christ. Maybe you've heard this famous quote by Martin Luther King Jr. He says, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry, he should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Well, the only way any of us can live like that, the only way we can fulfill the why of our work 
is by submitting ourselves to Christ. Whatever our role, whatever our job, whatever we do, we work for the Lord, for His pleasure and His purposes. We're instruments of Him. Let's pray. Father God, we want those things to be true of us. We want to be your instruments used by you, and yet we know that so often the uh, challenge of being people pleasers or uh, working for eye service get in the way, and so we pray that you would empower us to live for you, to work for you, that everything we do in word or deed would be uh, lifting up your name. And we know that uh, that means that we have to be drawing ever closer to you in the way that we live and the way that we work and pray that we would do that, that even this week we might reflect the truth about who you are even more and more clearly than we have. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus.